All right, great souls. We are continuing conversations with Yogananda, and we are on number 336. Every so often now I start looking toward the end, which is really not a good attitude, but we have about a hundred more to go. All right. The master almost never went to the movies. Occasionally in the past, however, he had done so, to divert his mind, I suspect, by becoming simply a spectator rather than the one responsible for so much of what happened around him. He once said to us, I used sometimes to go to the movies to get away from interviews and telephone calls. As I was sitting in the theater, I went into samadhi. Afterward, people asked me, did you enjoy the movie? And I'd answer, oh, very much. I'd been watching the cosmic movies inside with stars and planets whirling through space. The, the, the phrase that I find interesting here is becoming simply a spectator rather than the one responsible for so much of what happened around him. I know Swami wrote that sentence from his own experience too because whenever, and certainly whenever Master was anywhere, all eyes were on him and absolutely every interaction would have to be in relationship to him, I'm sure. No one in his company ever diverted the energy away from him. I mean, of of course, in the early years when they would go camping and many different things, there's, I'm sure the interactions were quite natural, but Master was always conscious of his position and his relationship to people, and Swamiji was in exactly the same position. You know, everything uh, would always depend on his response, which of course is tiring, or is... uh, something that at times I know Swamiji would I was thinking about this when I read it um, he would have people he would interact with people in, in sort of two, two primary ways he would invite people over for tea occasionally for meals but much more often for tea and then it would be conversational or of course meetings and things like that I'm, I'm just talking informal not when he would sit and give a satsang informally he'd invite people for tea and then there would be conversation and then often he would invite people over to watch a video. And it was sort of an, another way of being with people where he didn't have to be active because then everybody would be concentrating on something else. But you, you could always feel his consciousness in the room. He had certain favorite movies and we just watched them over and over again. I mean, we watched them. he watched them so many times that I can't imagine that he was actually really watching them. But when Master needed you know, uh, to have, this is how it's described here, he, he would, to get away from interviews and phone calls, you know, in the first many years of Master's life, he, he, he was very much moving on his own. He had a few people to help him, but it wasn't like he had all these buffers, and nor could he allow there to be all these buffers because he was making contact with everyone. He would he, he simply needed to be available to find his disciples, to win them, to begin to just influence consciousness. And it was, I'm, I'm sure, a, a reality without rest. And so he, in order to not have to respond, but it's just so funny the way he describes it. I would just go into samadhi, just watch the planets. Yeah, a little bit it, further on he talks more about that. I mean, if you have any questions or comments, just raise your hands. Number 337, he told us he'd once gone to see The Song of Bernadette, a movie about the life of St. Bernadette of Lourdes, France. 
I was deeply moved, he said, for there were many similarities between her life and my own. And then I chanced to look up and saw the light coming out of the projection booth. Everything taking place on the screen was an illusion created by variations of shadows and light. Such is human existence. It is all God's play producing everything. It is all God's light producing everything. Yet how completely real it all seems to human beings. This movie of St. Bernadette of Lourdes, if you've never watched it, you have to get one the one that was made in 1935 or 1940. I don't know when it was. But it's called, uh, Saint, I think it's called St. Bernadette. The song. the song of Bernadette. Song of Bernadette. But it's, it's a black and white film made a long time ago. I believe it's been remade. But what, I'm not sure whether it has been remade, but it's the really it's the old one that's really it's really an extraordinarily beautiful movie it's interesting because uh, in Narayani's book about Swamiji she mentions at the very end of his life Swami watching that movie one evening during 2010 and 11 when he had a lot of trouble sleeping she and just in many ways he was in a difficult transition and she mentions once they watched that movie but Swami had to stop watching it because Bernadette was persecuted by the older nuns in the convent that she entered. And Swami found it so painful to watch not, he said later, it was not Bernadette's suffering that upset him, but it was the fact that the other nun didn't understand what was happening and was was creating so much suffering for herself by the way she was treating Bernadette. She was setting herself up to suffer and because she had closed herself off from what was there for her so he suffered on both sides of it you know and he and uh, he couldn't uh, at that time he was so tender hearted he couldn't bear it he asked Narayana to turn off the movie so when masters the song of Bernadette is both sides but it's also a very good book extremely good book same name song of Bernadette if you have never read it, it's definitely a beautiful read. And uh, she had, she was a young girl, and she had visions of the Virgin Mary in, at Lourdes when she was, I don't know, thirteen or fourteen or something like that. Not very old, and nobody believed her. So she was, because she was just a peasant girl. So she was very severely tested because everybody was sure she was making it up. And, and it was at the city dump is where she saw them. And it just nobody believed her. And she was very uneducated, so she couldn't give them any. And they just did everything to break her down. But she just repeatedly just told the truth because she, she, was, too, she was too guileless to do anything else. And then eventually she persuaded people. And then uh, what also happened was just the people began to believe her and just great processions of people were going. But the authorities, including the church authorities, remained very skeptical and very oppositional. So she suffered an enormous amount. And then finally, when it was accepted as true, um, she more or less had to enter a convent, even though in her mind she had never considered that one way or another. 
But she had to because now she was a saint in the eyes of the church and it was inconceivable that she wouldn't become a nun. So she had to become a nun. And then there were people in the convent, sisters, who were um, unsympathetic and jealous and cruel to her. So the story is when Master said there were many elements of her life that reminded me of mine, you don't know which side of it all sides of it probably, the ecstasy of her visions and then the persecution she suffered from the world. And she entered the convent, but she died young. She developed a, she, tuberculosis, tuberculosis of the bone and suffered silently until she was near death and then finally died. Um, it's, a, it's just a beautiful story. And Lourdes now, of course, among the things that happened was a miraculous spring just spontaneously uh, appeared where the visions were. Mary told her to dig in the earth. And so she dug in the earth and um, this water started coming up. And that water is the healing water of Lourdes and there have been countless miracles from that ever since. So you go to Lourdes now, it's this, it's this huge um, campus almost, you know, with the cathedral and where the healing waters are and all these baths where you can go into the healing waters and it's very, very moving. It's it's really just an exquisite place. Then the grotto where they have a statue of the Mary as she saw her. You know, it's just say again? Oh it's a real story. Yeah. And it and for it was in the eighteen hundreds I think. Maybe even close to the turn of the century. No, it would have been 17 or 1800s. I think 1800s is when it was. Yes, because there was telegraph and printing press and radios and um, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's really it's really moving. So, I mean, among the reasons why Swami recommended the movie is because Master did. Okay. Number three three eight. I, Swami Kriyananda Walter, once sat down on the floor in front of the master with my toes curled under me, resting my weight on them. I once sat down with my toes curled under me, resting my weight on them. That doesn't sound like much of a description. It's confusing. Okay. Don't sit like that, the master said. I changed my position but wonder why he'd said not to sit that way. He then explained, it's bad for the eyes. It's just like... How strange, I thought, the subtle connections between the parts of the body and between the body and the brain. I recalled photos I had seen of people in Japan seated in that position. And I reflected that an unusually high proportionate number of them wear glasses. (laughs) So if if you're watching this film and want to know what the position looks like, if if you look at, I guess, the way Japanese people sit... (laughs) Anyway, it's like if you stand on your feet, stand on your toes, and then sit down on your heels. That would be, I'm just trying to give a word description of it. Anyway, but it's interesting, isn't it? Okay, I've got my shoes on, but you can see. You're, you're kneeling, but instead of having your, resting your feet on the top of your feet, you've, got your, you've turned your feet back, so your to- toes are pointing towards your knees. Then you just go down on top of it. I don't know why people do that, but they do. Um, it, it, it's terribly uncomfortable as far as I'm concerned. The firm pose is much easier. That's what you do in yoga, but this is what... But, but he's right. 
It's an oriental. You see it in Asia a lot. How do these things start? Why do they become traditions? Why is it affect your eyes to turn your toes under? But Master had us uh, also when he teaches, whoa, look at that. When he teaches Hong Sa, he has you put your index finger in and out. And when you, you know, when you do Japa, it's just, there's all kinds of traditions about these things. Or much earlier in this book, Master Dr. Lewis talks about the, the fact, or, or Swami tells the story about when Master met Dr. Lewis, I think it's in this book. At one point he had Dr. Lewis take all his clothes off. And he carefully examined his body um, for, for positive signs of spirituality. And after he examined his body, he said, you know, very good, you have very good karma. Yeah. Uh, Ramakrishna used to um, uh, feel the weight of a person's forearm. Disciples would come and he would sort of, and he would sort of decide by how heavy the forearm was. I mean, of course, a master would have other ways of knowing, but nonetheless, you just, well, of course, I, I thought about this before that, you know, people can read your palms, they can read your feet, they can read your iris. Um, I realized you could probably read your, um, they, they can take a drop of blood and now these days and they can analyze all these different things about your health. It, I think if you knew, you could read your eyebrows, you know, you, you could read your elbows, because every single thing is created from the pattern of your energy in your chakras. It's like all of us look, look so different. I mean, it's, isn't, it's so remarkable. And even um, identical twins can be recognized. If you know them well enough, you can tell because each one has a different destiny and is a separate consciousness. So every particle has to be made consistent with that pattern because everything is created from the inside out. It's not molded, it's from the inside out. So the only way it could manifest would be a consistent vibration with your consciousness. And therefore, it also has to be interrelated in some way or another. But, you know, to say generally that if you curl your toes like that, it's going to hurt your eyes, we just don't know. We're just children in all of this, really. It, it, I, rem I remember... I remember a Star Trek movie or Star Wars, Star Trek probably movie it was, where the, th the whole theme was that they'd come back, they'd come back from the future on the spaceship and one of their people got injured and they were going to do brain surgery on him. And it was just like they were just panicked that this barbaric treatment would be given to their comrade and they were desperate to rescue him from the hospital and get him back to the future before they, good God, cut open his head and put a knife into his brain. They just couldn't think of anything more horrific than to do that. And we consider that progress. So who can say? All right. It helps, keeps you humble. It really does. It, it both keeps you humble and it keeps you open. I mean, a lot of suggestions that people make are preposterous and we have to also have a good sense of humor. But at the same time, not everything that seems really far out isn't true. It just is true. Swamiji, many years ago, was, was in Paris when there was some kind of a, a, a display in some museum there of very large crystals, crystals like the size of furniture. And he, he said afterwards, it was be, he said, being there, he was in the presence of living beings. 
but the vibration of their consciousness was just so different than human beings. It was that it was just fascinating to just sort of be there among them and, and, and feel that energy. This is a, uh, off to the side, but it was a fun story. Once Swamiji, this was, I don't know when this would have been, the 80s or probably in the 90s sometime. Swami dreamt, and the way he told this story, I always felt he was telling us that this was a real experience. It, he presented it not as if, isn't it a weird dream? He presented it as if it was a, a real experience, but he, he left it a little open. In his, while he was sleeping, a delegation came to him in, in a dream, and the delegation was from another planet in another solar system. And they, they knew about Swamiji, and they needed uh, an avatar, essentially. They needed a, a spiritual leader on their planet, and they had come to see if, they could, if he would go with them. And Swami said they were very sincere, and it was uh, obviously they were coming from a higher a planet that was in a higher age. And uh, they were very sincere, and he was very impressed with them, and he felt very drawn to help them. But he said, then he remembered, and he sort of, the way he told the story looked like this, oh, he would have to adjust to a whole new culture, he would have to learn yet another language, <laughs> and he decided it really wasn't for him, so he declined their invitation. Now, and I, ne- I didn't have the wherewithal at the time to ask, if you had accepted, would you have died? Or would you have simply been in two places at the same time? Why I didn't ask any of those questions, I don't really know. But it was just, it was an, another one of those stories. And I, he didn't tell it to us like, isn't the subconscious mind amazing? He, he presented it to us. I can't verify for certain exactly what it meant, but he presented it seriously. And I think, how, how different is this existence than we think? And there's Master sitting in a movie theater, and we think he's watching the movie, and he's watching the cosmic movie. It's, it's just because you're in physical proximity to someone doesn't mean that you understand the magnitude of what their consciousness is doing, or just because we have a certain little reality that we live in, that we by any means embrace the whole of it. It's quite fascinating. Yes? Just uh, <coughs> aside on the... <coughs> the notion that there's some sort of a connection between uh, putting your toes in a certain position and your eyesight. Um, I know little of this, but I, I believe there are some um, ancient Asian healing techniques that posit uh, energy meridians. Oh, yes, of course. And, you know, and they have all these maps of the, uh, what's right. connected to what and so forth. Right. And uh, there are definitely some causal relationships between them. I'm certain that somebody knows exactly, probably can objectively yeah. say what that was. It's not one that's commonly spoken of, especially since a whole country tends to sit that way. But nonetheless, huh? Well, then now they talk about if you, you, know, you have problems with your teeth and what it's doing to your body, and if you have certain teeth replaced, then you're going to have all these symptoms. That's what I mean. I think that you could look at anything if you could read it. Your fingerprints, think about that. Like, what, what does it mean that my fingerprint looks a certain way? Why do I have a different blood type? You just, why is my hair curly? You can't tell it's curly, but it's curly. My, it was the envy of my mother. You know, my mother loved my curly hair. You know, it's just like, where did it come from? It came from my dad, but why? I've actually 
now it's so short you can't tell, but I, before it was, you know, it would curl. It's, it wasn't, it's not wildly curly, but whenever I would have one, it would do like that. And, you know, you, you would ask yourself, how does it know? <laughs> how does it know to consistently and always just do that? <laughs> just, these are the things that I would, even as a child, I would wonder. Because my sister's hair didn't, it just went like that, but mine always did this. Okay, and you know, why did I want it to be curly? What did I think it would serve me to make it curly? Because obviously there was an intention behind it, probably not a profound one, but just think about all the circumstances that make you end up being born to a family, being a culture, being a... I know when I was in India and was having to, uh, not having to, but had the opportunity uh, to counsel certain women and things that they were going through and they, you know, there, were, there, there, there were cultural realities to being an Indian woman that was very different than being an American woman um, like the, the relationship with your parents and your in-laws and your husband and your obligation for your children you know the world is becoming very much the same but these things still hold and um, women in India were and to a large extent still are much more tightly bound to that family unit than American women are. And it's not, it's not something that appeals to me, is to be caught in these very big family units. I remember saying to a very modern Indian lady who was herself a very successful businesswoman and all of that, we were talking about something. And I just used a phrase which was so obvious to me, which was, well, it's your life. She just laughed very happily, but she just laughed. Of course it's not, she said. It belongs to my parents, my in-laws, my husband, my children. It was just like, what a preposterous phrase. It wasn't, she wasn't even rebelling against it. It was just like, of course it doesn't. And, of, and my American point of view, yes, of course it does. But I got a little confused as to what was the right advice in that context. But then I realized, of course, and of course there's something very, very positive about, I mean, uh, I read the introduction to a book written by a Swami in the Vivekananda order, the Ramakrishna order. And he was, he was talking in the most perfect way about that ideal of selfless womanhood, which is really like so unpopular these days, and I don't think it's helping women to have gotten on these campaigns, but I, I don't want to get there too far because I, I don't want to get the emails. I recognize that there's a lot of historical distortion that has to be fixed, and I'm for it, but I don't think it helps. I don't think this aggressive ego identification with gender is spiritually that helpful to people. I, I separate the two realities. You know, social justice is one thing. Profound egoic anger is something else. But this ideal of, of selfless service, which is really what the feminine principle is supposed to represent, it becomes socially abused. But the feminine principle is the mother principle, is the selfless giving. You know, the, the epitome, the ideal, most selfless form of love in creation is mother love. It's completely self-sacrificing, even to the point of giving one's own body for the sake of the child and feeding the child through your own body, forgetting all the modern 
socially motivated ideas related to that, it's a principle of mother love. And that kind of selfless loving is profoundly spiritual. And when a person, when it's not coerced out of you or demanded from you, but spontaneously arises from you and offered as a gift, that's where we're trying to go. And to, to denigrate it as an ideal just demeans everyone, men and women. But to coerce it or demand it or enforce it or bully it out of people is also a tragedy. But this book that I was reading, it just talked about how it described it so beautifully. It was the first time I'd ever heard it perfectly expressed, which is what the true ideal is of, you would call it Indian womanhood, is what, what he was writing about, is where just simply, I'm here to serve. How can I serve? And there's no necessity to preserve one's own life because one's own life is a life of service, which all of us touch into from time to time and, and thrive when it's really our true nature. But the coerced side of that, I mean, just, I'm going to go back to where I was with the Indian women. It's like, from the time I was a young child, and, and I was a voracious reader, and I read, I love to read fiction books. Any story in which, the man or the woman, but it would usually be the female, the heroine, was somehow her life was bound by social conditions or by gender restrictions or family demands. Just as a little child, I would chafe, you know, it would really, it would just really annoy me. And I would just be trying to urge the heroine in the book, you know, just stand up for yourself, don't put up with that, you know, kind of energy. And I was born into a family where I was allowed to be extremely independent. And of course, I've lived in a culture and Ananda is absolutely gender neutral. I mean, gender blind is the only way to call it. There's just no identification with gender. It simply doesn't exist. And so my whole life has been open to me without any limitation. But I realize, of course, that's why I wasn't born in India. Because it's not a karma that I need to go through now. At least, it doesn't seem to be. It's a karma that I I believe I've probably fought my way through before. So there's no point in putting me in one of those situations again because I would just take my life into my own hands and that would be that. So there's no growth for it. But if uh, I said I would take my life into my own hands, I recall sitting in uh, uh, Bangalore giving a little satsang to the group there a number of years ago when it was just beginning. And I was just telling my own story because we didn't know each other. And so I met Swami Kriyananda and then I just left everything and I moved to Ananda village. Well, what did your parents say? I didn't think to ask them. <laughs> and what they had said, what they might have said, would have been irrelevant to me. And then I just smiled and said, I am an American, what can I do? You know. But nonetheless, even as an American, I have had a very independent attitude. And they were um, amused. I mean, these are, these are very sophisticated people. It's not like they'd never heard of it. But it just, to have acted so precipitately and so radically at such a young age without consulting even. Just, it just wasn't in their context. So that's what those people are doing together, is they're all sort of sorting out, where do I fit in all of this? And that's, sometimes it's hard to really accept it calmly, that everybody's where they're supposed to be, and they're being given the chances, the opportunities, and the challenges that they're supposed to have. 
uh, sometimes that's hard to accept, especially if you yourself have been mistreated, because it can lead to a, a very tenuous sense of self. So it's a truth that sometimes you want to embrace it and sometimes you just want to put it on the shelf and work with something else until it's easier to swallow. I know certainly Swami said many things about many things that I just couldn't comprehend. I either I just couldn't see them either as relevant or I couldn't understand them. So I just put them on the shelf until they fit, which was sometimes a long time later. But nothing that I can remember has ever remained incomprehensible to me. It just sometimes took... 30 or 40 years for me to comprehend it. That's all. <laughs> all right. So, number 339. The simple thought that you are not free, the master said one day, reiterating a thought he'd expressed earlier, keeps you from being free. If you could only break that simple thought, you would go into samadhi, Samadhi is not something one needs to acquire. You have it already. Just think, eternally you have been with God. For a few incarnations you live in delusion. But then again, you are free in Him for eternity. Live always in that thought. Isn't that beautiful? There's just no way to add to that. It's so confusing because... You know, the truth of it is simple and every master says when you finally perceive it, you, you don't really, you can't understand how come you didn't know it all that time before. I was very touched by a, a, a story of a man who was dying and he had been very um, frightened. And then from night to morning, his, this was a true anecdote I was reading, not a person I know, but a story in a book. And... Uh, from night to morning, he lost all fear and became very joyful. And when his family wanted to know, well, in the night, he had been given a view of where he was going. And it wasn't quite time for him to go, but he'd been given a view of where he was going. And once he saw where he was going, he realized that there was nothing to be concerned about. And, but the way he described it, he said, you know, we just, this world seems like it's a, it's, it, we feel like we're looking at the edges of reality. But he said it isn't. It's just, it's an open window into a complete other dimension. And he said, I can't see into it now. He said, but it's like just on the periphery of my consciousness. And every time I think I can see it and I turn, it just moves just out of my sight. But it was, it, it was shimmering enough that it was just almost right there. And, but he was unable to to force that, of course, that was leaving his body. But that's the, the strange dilemma that we find ourselves in. And it's, it's a balancing act between affirming that reality at all times and also not making ourselves crazy by trying to impose on ourselves a, a, a perception that isn't spontaneous. So, so you have to you have to live uh, powerfully in both worlds, which is with just the the sure, calm understanding that, of course, we are one with the infinite, and the calm understanding that I'm not experiencing it yet. This is remember how when 
Swamiji played the part of Jesus in the tableau for the Mason Club or Masonic Lodge. And he, because he, it was, he said it was because he had a beard and he was practically the only one in Los Angeles who had a beard. But I think he also had a certain radiance as a young man. So it was just a tableau. He just played the part. I think he leaned against the rock and prayed before he was crucified. I think that's what the part was. And then afterwards, Master said to him, um, I understand you did very well. You know that, you, that people said you look just like Jesus. And Swami's response was, well, I'd rather be like Jesus than merely look like him. And Swami, the way he described it, his master was just so casual. Oh, that'll come. That will come. And, and that, to me, often sort of expresses just exactly what was true. Because, of course, master's also making this strong affirmation. You don't have to acquire it. It's just a thought. But when Swami said, I'd rather be like Jesus, Master didn't say, you are, you are like Jesus. You should affirm that you're like Jesus. He, he, that wasn't his answer. His answer was the calm assurance that, it, that of course, he would, he would become like Jesus. So that, to me, is how I've always tried to rest in this idea. Everybody does it differently. I, I have, on occasion, said that, you know, I just, I'm, I, I'm not... I don't operate on the absolute conviction that I have to be liberated in this lifetime. I feel like I'm close enough and I can just finish the race and I don't have to feel frantic about whether or not I have to take one, one more body or 50 more bodies. It's just, it doesn't concern me because I know, I know that I'm doing everything I can. And, and what comes with that also is the, just the very calm assurance that I'm doing the best I can and therefore this is my destiny. And whether it's today or tomorrow is not as important to me as the calm assurance that this is my destiny. And I think that's what we're trying to work with because otherwise, it, I mean, I know some people feel more strongly that they have to affirm it very forcefully, but I don't do well with affirmations that I, I don't feel authentic in. I mean, when... Uh, a person, an affirmation is powerful when every part of you can really believe it. If, if your subconscious doubts it, if, if too much of you doubts it, the affirmation actually weakens you. Uh, there was a woman who came to, to me once. She had been working, she was a chemist, and she had gradually developed allergies to some of the compounds she had to work with. So she'd had to take a leave of absence from her work and she was about to go back to work and she was very anxious about it and she came to talk to me. And the affirmation that she had developed for herself was essentially, I am perfectly well and you know, nothing is going to touch me once I go back to work. It was more elegant than that. But even as she said it to me, I said, you don't believe that, do you? She said, no. But she'd somehow gotten the idea that that's what she was supposed to affirm. So in fact, literally in fact, every time she said it, it reinforced the fact that she didn't believe it. Because pushing herself that far caused her subconscious mind to become anxious and tense. So she was weakening her will every time she said it. So we came up with an affirmation which was on the lines of, you know, I will act sincerely in attunement with God and wherever he leads me I will be happy to go. <laughs> and it wasn't quite that, but it was something like that because that left space for whatever was going to happen and she could really believe that 
now, again, you know, people have different points of view, but I've always felt that your affirmation has to be um, bigger than you are now, but there has to be a straight line from where you are now. They, uh, I've repeated this before, but I'll repeat it again. My favorite affirmation, and it still is, and I've used it a lot, is, I know God's power is limitless, and as I am made in his image, I too have the strength to overcome all obstacles. My uh, my Achilles heel is anxiety and fear. So this is a good affirmation for me. I know God's power is limitless, no problem there. And as I am made in his image, I'm really, really solid on that too. Then the only problem I have is with the last line. <laughs> I too have the strength to overcome all obstacles. But with the first two lines really solid, it follows naturally. So I have to expand into into that last line but it's I can reach for it because I've, I've gotten myself to the point where it must be true so I mean that's I use that as an example because that sort of gives you an idea of what you need to work with you have to be standing on solid ground somewhere when I feel that no I don't have the strength I can't possibly do it I think but of course you can because God can act through you because God has limitless power, and even if you think you don't, you do because he does. And I can just reason myself back to it every time. And the first two lines are so strong that whatever weakness I might have in the last one, because of whatever it is I'm supposed to have the strength to deal with, and I don't think I do, I must. My, my life experience uh, supports the fact that I will have the strength to do it. The other, uh, this is not an affirmation, but it's become one. A friend of mine who, uh, she's psychic, but the fact that she was psychic was only part of this. I was expressing some concern. It might have been about writing this book about Swami Kriyananda, which was a big issue for me for several years, or something in relation to that. And she just very casually said, both as a friend and as an intuitive, she said, oh, somehow, Asha, you always manage to get it done. It was, very, it was a very casual remark, but it, I feel it was God-inspired because I had to stop and think. And, you know, I, I haven't always done everything perfectly, but somehow I always get managed to get it done or I managed to readjust the project to, to be able to do it. But I, I don't usually actually just completely fizzle out as fear, as fear would have me believe I'll do that I, won't, I just won't be able to make it happen. No, actually, somehow I always get it done. And that has also become a really, a really weird and powerful affirmation for me. When I'm thinking I don't know what's going to happen or what I'm going to do, I say, oh, somehow you always get it done. And that gives room for all the chaos and, you know, back and forthing and anxiety and uncertainty. But the end of it, for all my life, virtually has been somehow I get it done. Sometimes I get it done better than other times, but I rarely just bomb. So you know, that's, that's what we're working with. At least that's what I find to be helpful. All right. Number 340. It is helpful, the Master said, to think of God as being forever with us, right here and right now ever in the present tense. This is, he's going on from his, 
from the one just before. I love that part. Right here, right now, ever in the present tense. Meaning that this, there's no future in this. This is just like we are as much with God now as we will ever be. That's, a, you know, that, that's also a very powerful affirmation. It's like, it's not like something happens. It's that we become aware of what already is. So that's what he means by the present tense. It's not like in the future, when we become aware of God, he will just have arrived. He will always have been there. We were just so busy and so preoccupied doing other things. Ever in the present tense, ask yourself at the same time, why are people so irresistibly drawn to living for rather than in the moment? In other words, to identify with the fleeting scenes and ever-fluctuating circumstances around them, changing events, endless streams of people, both enemies and friends. So we're living for the moment, which is all the things that are happening instead of in the the reality of life itself, of consciousness. Unfortunately, it takes time, so this is an irony, unfortunately it takes time to banish the mental hypnosis that all this and that time itself is a reality, focusing one on the desire for ephemeral sense experiences. You just, you spend your whole life just sort of trying to go over and over that. It's just, no matter how many times you say it's not happening, it's clearly happening. And, as Master himself said, the dream is real on the level of the dream. So, and a part of this I was, I don't know, I don't think I was talking about it, I was reading about it. I used to feel that Swamiji was not actually participating in this world, that he was just outside of it, that that's what it meant to be spiritually advanced. To be spiritually advanced meant to be aloof from this experience. But it took me a long time to realize how that, a, a great master is not aloof from the experience, but he's seeing it all happening on a different level at the same time. And he, it's, it's like you're the bubble in the sea and you really experience what it is to be the bubble, but you're also conscious of the fact that the bubble exists in the sea. And what happens with us is we get so involved in being the bubble that we lose track of the fact that the bubble exists in the sea and we begin to become very anxious about being a little bubble. And that's basically, you know, when I was talking about those affirmations, when I begin to imagine that I'm just a bubble and it's quite clear that a bubble can't cope with all that's going on in one's life, then you become very anxious. But that doesn't mean that the tragedies and the sorrows and the betrayals and the challenges and the disappointments that, that, that happen to the bubble don't happen. But they, they feel differently if you know that you're part of the sea the whole time. But you still have to go through that, that same thing. Master himself, I think it's number 99 in here. It was really a fun one when Master said, let me see if I can get his exact words. It's so interesting. Um, let me just see how he said it. Master says, my role here is very difficult. I have to play both divine and human parts. This is Master himself speaking. My inner and my outer natures are different. 
in my divine self I see these things he's talking about knowing what's going on in with his disciples but sometimes that self remains aloof until something is called to my attention my outer self plays a human role it is not easy to play both roles at the same time though I do my best to live as God wants me to so you know he's trying to explain to us what it's like but he is saying I have to play both roles I have to be both human and divine I think these are not things that can be understood with words they have to be intuitively felt but th- that's what that's what he's saying to us when he says the simple thought that you are not free you have God already think about God in the present tense it's not that we separate ourselves from our human life it's that we play both roles at the same time because master was incredibly proactive in his life swamiji was exceedingly proactive and sometimes when he would be intensely acting other people, i mean it would be amazing to me but i watched it happen people would lecture swamiji on the spiritual principles on the spiritual principles you know don't be attached don't be anxious it's going to be all right and when people do that i would think who do you think taught, taught you those spiritual principles what do you think you're doing trying to remind him to have the right attitude you have to look at what he's doing and you know now they have that phrase reverse engineer it think if this is the way he's behaving what does that mean because sometimes the human side has to become intensely active and intensely involved and swami was anything but passive i remember once when they were when we they were starting the san francisco center so this would have been 1979 and swamiji spent the whole summer there trying to get the center going and we were scheduling i was there for part of it we were scheduling these different classes and swamiji was doing a lot of teaching and um he was very emphatic that whenever you had a class series you first had a free lecture and then you had people sign up for the class afterwards and we scheduled a series that was north of the city like an hour away up in Santa Rosa or something we were living in San Francisco and we didn't schedule a free lecture i say we i don't know who was responsible but it wasn't him we didn't schedule a free lecture we just started with the class series that he was giving so we we all went way up there wherever it was and like three or four people came which was not very many for swami's committed energy and he was not pleased that we had not followed the pattern that he that he wanted and uh, someone said something later like well i guess divine mother just sent the people that she wanted to have come and swami said please he said allow a little room for human error is <laughs> like that <laughs> but it was he was very firm it was he didn't want to hear philosophy we'd made a mistake and we needed to acknowledge it we hadn't been attentive and that was that was philosophy was not an excuse for that and sometimes we didn't we didn't want that from him we wanted a little softer we wanted to use the philosophy to make excuses but he he was always intense about it. he was always conscious of the need to earn money he was always thinking about how to you know maximize the income for what we were doing not in a negative way but you know a lot of us just wanted to drift but he paid for the whole building of ananda for 25 years and he knew it wasn't going to come just from he talked this was so funny at the beginning this was like 
in the in the early 70s when Ananda was just starting at, at what is now Ananda Village, it was the hippie era and there were lots of people coming in. You, you couldn't live there if you were still doing drugs, although it was got a little slushy at times. You needed people to start a community and you couldn't really define the community until you had people. So it was a little, those first few years were a little, there was a lot of a gray area about what people were doing. And a lot of people had dropped out and they didn't want to be materialistic, so they really didn't want to bother with having to earn money or pay the mortgage or anything like that. They just, spiritual life to them was doing what you felt to do, which was usually just going down to the river or just hanging out in the woods or like that. So they all were always telling Swami to just relax, that, you know, God would pay the mortgage. So he didn't relax. He would earn the money and he would pay the mortgage which proved to them that they were right because they'd put out no effort and the mortgage was paid. And Swami just, he would just sort of tear his hair out because he didn't really know how to resolve the issue until gradually the population and the attitude changed. But he couldn't very well just let the, the property go just so that they could learn that it wasn't right. But that is a very, it's a very fine line. And that's where Master's comment I live on both sides of it, and I have to live on both sides of it. But at the same time, we're somehow supposed to be completely committed and also never lose contact with the fact that it's all a dream. The, the, the way that I have made this work, and this is, you know, some things I say are just things I've made up, you know, is by defining my life as service to Master. Because then it's not because I myself want to do it. It's because, okay, this is, this is a whole piece of it here, but let's give the whole thing. When I first moved to Ananda in 1971, I was proud of the fact that I wasn't committed to building the community. I was proud of that because I had come to learn spiritual things from Swami and I just wasn't going to get involved. You know, I mean, I was there, I was having fun, I was doing stuff, but I, I, w- I did it because it was fun, but I just didn't have any commitment to the project. And then a, a couple of years into it, I, I remember I was in the back seat of the car, we were driving through what Ananda was at that point, and I, was, I remember looking out the window just thinking how much tremendous effort it took to manifest every little piece of what I was looking at, which was nothing compared to what there is now, and I, I was aware, because I, I was already working closely with Swami, how, how intensely active he was, how unremittingly determined he was to, to succeed and to make it work and constantly creating and acting. And just, it was, you know, he just never stopped, literally. And uh, I finally realized, first of all, well, if Swami was that committed, probably his point of view was better than mine. <laughs> and the other part, which was much more uh, from the heart, was if it's that important to him and he's that important to me, I should help him. It was just so obvious all of a sudden. You know, I can't be his friend and let him just haul the boxes while I sit over here and drink tea. 
I mean, really, you go to help somebody move and you just sit there and drink tea and just watch them pack and carry things around. It's not a very winning strategy. and It's not a very appropriate response. But I realized that not actually physically, because physically I was active, but mentally I was just drinking tea and letting him carry the boxes. And I just thought, this is completely off. So my, my commitment was to, was to him as a friend. But then, of course, I gradually, by getting engaged, I began to understand it on other levels. But when you think about the master, when you think about the avatar, you know, the, the greater can no love be than this, that from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, the avatar descends and then dedicates himself to changing the consciousness of the planet. So we, who, who say that we love, you know, our guru, that we are committed to all of this, but just drink tea and just talk about the illusion of the world and why it struggles so much, there's something really off about the picture. And, and the other part of it is, you know, if, if one is conscious of how much has been given by those great masters, and, you know, that line in the festival is really important. Greater can no love be than this, from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. Now, here's the human and the divine side. And, and that's why number 99 in this book is really important. They really do live through it. They live in the same prison we live. They eat the same food and they're bound by the same conditions. But they do it entirely out of selfless dedication to us. And here's the last part that's in the festival. Here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey. It's like one doesn't always hear those two paragraphs as connected. But they are the redemption, the description of a master willing to sacrifice everything to help others is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey. So when are we going to start being in that fourth stage? Are we just going to hang out in the quest for a really long time or the revolt? Are we actually going to move into the redemption? What does the redemption look like? I give my all to serve humanity. And what... How are we going to do that except in, consist, in, in consistent service to their cause, the cause of self-realization for all? I and mean, this, is, this is a very important line in the sand, and I'm, I'm watching, uh, you know, next generations having to actually um, come to terms with whether or not they are taking from this ray or giving to this ray or how much they want to give to this ray and of course everybody has different karma so I'm not going to make a list of what you should do but it's it's a very interesting question that you have to come to as a disciple just like how much am I how much am I able how much am I called to give how can I give and and then you know what way but it's uh, it's pretty straightforward you know we have to find ways to give, but it's pretty straightforward to get our, our, our minds turned around to that. I was talking to someone this morning who's taking on a fundraising position in another, uh, another community. And I was just talking to him a little about fundraising. And I said, fundraising is having absolute, f- absolute faith in the importance of what we're doing. 
just absolutely no doubt. And the second is confidence that whatever money is given to you will be used appropriately for that work. But it, it, was, it was a very interesting way to pick it up because usually you fundraise and you go to seminars and you learn about all these different things. But that's not where the power comes from. The power comes from, I know this is worth doing and you need to help because it'll help you to help. And if you give us our money, it will do more good than if you keep it. <laughs> Just like that. And then people want to because every, you know, people are altruistic and idealistic. And, and if you really can exude that kind of confidence, then they'll be happy to do it. And then, of course, you have to deliver. You have to deliver something for what they give. But when that loop gets going, it's, uh, it's very, very powerful. Let's take a brief break, and then we'll go on. We were having some discussion. There was a brief break in the class here. Let me just just give me a second to try to think how we got into it. How did we get into it? What were we talking about? Oh, I know. It was was about the moment when I realized that I had to help Swamiji with what was important to him. And, you know, it's interesting how God um, lures you in. (laughs) Because I was drawn to this path entirely because Swamiji exemplified, Swamiji was the personification of who I wanted to become. And you can can put lots of other, uh, uh, lots of other things around my relationship with him and all of them fit. But the the first and and consistent reality start to finish was I, I, I aspired to become something that I I knew was possible, but I didn't know what it looked like. And when he walked into the room, there it was. So how was I ever going to learn to become what he was except to learn from him? But of course, it was a long process. Very is a very long process. So beginning to understand if, if it was... Imp- beginning to understand how to be a true friend, which is one, just one thing by itself, how to be a good disciple, how to understand how... You can be on a path that's designed to transcend this world, and you, yet you can participate in the world with so much energy. Because this paragraph we're reading, you know, um, in other words, to identify with the fluctuating circumstance and the natural hypnosis of all of this and so on, get involved in the ephemeral, it's just really easy for the intellectual mind to think that means I don't have to really participate in this world. I don't have to be committed. I don't have to really give my energy but when you look at those like Swamiji and like Master, who, who are the fulfillment of what we're trying to achieve, that is not how they behave. At least, now let me phrase it differently. There are great gurus, and this is important, there are great gurus who stand completely outside of active life. They live in caves, they teach their disciples accordingly, they do nothing. So it isn't essential for spiritual life to be as we are, but this is our ray. And if you're on this path, then you're part of this. Now, of course, it may well be, even now, we may have secret disciples who are serving only by meditation, and we just don't know about them because they're not on the front lines like some of us are. Because, of course, it's a perfectly valid path. You know, Master may have many secret disciples up in the Himalayas. Who knows? But those of us who find ourselves in the middle of the fray here need to get into the fray. And I, um, I was listening to Swamiji 
on one of his episodes of Ask Me About Truth, which is 108 programs that are on the internet. You can look them up. It was, it was the last set of recordings he did. He had his friends Dharma, Dharmadas and Nirmala sitting on one side asking him about truth. And they, there's this very thin pretense in these films that they're, they're neophytes asking him questions, a, a pretense which dissolves periodically, but it just doesn't make any difference. It's my favorite recording that he did because there's just such a beautiful energy among the three of them and they it's very casual and they laugh and the, it's conversational. It's not Swami just holding forth so it, it brings out a completely different aspect. But one of them, Nirmala Dharmadas, asked Swamiji something about politics. These were filmed in 2012, I guess, so we weren't dealing with what we're dealing with now, but politics has always been a problem. And the world is, was chaotic then too. Oh, I know what it was because of the Mayan calendar ends in 2012. I saw a cartoon, you'll have to help me remember where I was, a cartoon, and there's these Mayan people, and they have this big stone, and it's all carefully carved, and you can see it's the Mayan calendar. And the, basically, the, the artist says, I just don't have room for any more. <laughs> it's a big explanation of why it ends. <laughs> the piece of the rock wasn't big enough to do, have it go on. <laughs> Well, anyway, the Mayan calendar, whatever that actually means. I know I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying whatever it actually means. Ended in 2012, so there was this anxiety. So they, uh, they were asking Swami to comment on that. I mean, the conversations in these shows are very wide-ranging. And uh, Swamiji said, basically, that he, he, first he said, the essential problem on the planet right now is greed. And he said, and I'm not just talking about Wall Street or the, uh, or the billionaires. He didn't use that phrase, but the people who make money. He said, I'm talking about everyone because it, those people have merely succeeded at what everyone is trying to do. I thought that was a perfect way to put it. <laughs> you know, they're just, they've done what everybody else is trying to do. And so they're not really at fault for having actually achieved it. The fault is the whole attitude that people have that we just are all trying to acquire and acquire way beyond what we need for a simple life. We're just all trying to acquire and that this movement toward greed on a, a very big scale, Master said that too about the last depression, that it was just greed. And, and people can be greedy even if they're not wealthy because they, they aspire to have more than they aspire to share. And that's an attitude of mind that even if you have nothing, you can have that attitude of mind. So um, Swami was saying that there's no solution to this on, on a, a macro level. There's no, we think that we look at a big thing and we want to sort of mold that big thing. But Swami was saying, it, it has to be coming from an individual change of consciousness. And then Swami emphasized also, it begins with the atoms. Every, every cell in our body is an intelligent force, and all of creation is made up of individual atoms. And Master said, every atom is dowered with individuality. Those are just two marvelous words. And In other words, everything is conscious. And that consciousness is oriented where it's going to be oriented. Every cell in our body, the, the collective of our consciousness, and where 
the individual enti entities, be they human minds or, or the components of the human being, the way they're oriented is what directs the whole ship. It's not directed from the outside, it's directed from the inside. So the solution to all of it is individual change of consciousness. Even though it appears like nothing is happening, that is the only way anything will ever happen because then the whole vibration is different. In the Finding Happiness movie, um, uh, Atman, who's the community director, who's very oriented toward uh, making the physical world work. That's his responsibility, the roads, the water, the power system. But in, on the question of ecology and where are the planets going and all of this, he says very simply, um, if everyone in the world lived the way we do at Ananda, we wouldn't have any of these problems. And it's not because we recycle perfectly or have solar energy. It's because we're not greedy. I mean, the ideal of Ananda is not, is not to, to gain but to share. And if, if, I mean, all the problems of the planet could be solved in a heartbeat, but people don't want to solve them. It just, and so it has to be a change of consciousness. I remember the first time I went to India, which was the first time I was in what we then called the third world, maybe the developing world was already a phrase, but it was the first time I was in a place where overpopulation was not just a word in a book. It's like I, I just really saw lots of people crowded in and lots of people living, struggling to live at a subsistence level. I remember, I remember an old woman sitting in, the, in a marketplace selling garlic by the clove. She'd taken the bulbs and broken them apart and was selling one garlic clove at a time to make her tiny living. But also the people buying could buy one clove for their dinner. And it was, it was just even the idea that you could go somewhere and buy just one clove of garlic just told me that I was somewhere I'd never been before. And of course, I come from America and it just like, it could, this could all be balanced out. It would be very easy to balance it out, but people don't want to balance it out. I remember some friends of mine from India, they were visiting in America and I don't remember what year it was or what regime it was or who the politicians were. But there had been some, some big kerfuffle in the Indian government because of the corruption that was exposed. And my friends, in their way, were laughing and they're saying, of course we knew that the politicians were stealing money, but we didn't realize they were stealing so much money. And, you know, the, the upset was just at the quantity that was being stolen because it had crossed some line. But it's just the way it is everywhere. People have more than they need, and so then some people don't have it. But you have to change the atom. You have to get a vibration going. But, but it is changing, and I see it a lot in material ways in relation to the planet. I was walking somewhere recently, and there was a, a table, and it was, it was called Fresh, and, and they, were, they were getting people to sign up for some delivery system where you get a box of fresh ingredients that you then cook into a fresh meal. And uh, this young man was standing there. If I had grandchildren, he might be my grandson. And um, he wanted me to sign up. And I smiled at him. I said, you know, I've been doing this myself for a long time. <laughs> and uh, 
But then I sort of looked at him and I said, when we started with all of this, you know, because it was vegetarian or it was vegan, that was also part of it. Fresh, vegan, vegetarian. I said, when we started all of this, we were lunatic fringe. And look at you, you're an up-and-coming entrepreneur. (laughs) I said, you know, this is just great. And so nobody legislated that. Not at all. The revolution you've seen in the way people eat and the organic movement and the natural medicine movement, nobody legislated it. That's what's really interesting when you stop and think about it. They get on the bandwagon when there's a market. But it, it, it wasn't like we moved the whole world in this way. It's that, that the individual atoms changed and this thing rose up from the ground. Meditation and yoga itself. You know, when you live a little longer in a, a, a transitional yuga, especially a, a yuga going up like we're doing, you know, just my short lifetime, relatively speaking, is enough to say, wow, look at that. I remember this was just so silly, but it amused me no end. You know, because I was especially, you know, a lot of times you start, I started on the spiritual path, you start with diet because it's the easiest thing to get. And I was really fanatical for a lot of years about a lot of this stuff. And, uh, but we were really lunatic fringe. It was, we were so far out on the edge at the time that we were doing it, 1967, 68. And I remember that I was in seclusion at Ananda Village once, and I was at the seclusion retreat, and they were bringing me meals. But the kitchen closed one day a week, and so they just brought me foodstuffs that I could fix my own meals. And you, when you're in seclusion, everything gets, sometimes you, you have these little jokes, and you're all by yourself, and still they're so funny to you. <laughs> so they brought me a box of cereal, among other things. And the cereal was, it was a, a commercial brand. This was, must have been the early 70s, so it was, no, it must have been later, like the 80s maybe. This commercial brand of some whole grain something or another, and on the box was a, a big uh, whole grain flake. <laughs> I mean, really big. And it said, enlarged so you can see the texture or something like that. <laughs> and I just, I thought that was the funniest thing I had ever seen. <laughs> that we'd come to the point where they put this giant cornflake on there so that you could see that it was whole grain. And it was just... It really tickled me. It, even to this day, I can just laugh. I remember just being alone in that cabin and just being in hysterics, looking at, in, looking at the cornflake enlarged so I could see the texture. <laughs> when we first started with this, this would have been, like this would have been 1966. Uh, maybe fair. Yeah, it would have been 1966. A friend of mine in Palo Alto was an accountant for General Mills. General Mills was the one who made Cheerios and all those things like that. He said it was a known fact in the company that there was more nutrition in the box, that you should eat the box because you would get more nutrition from the box than you would get from the cereal. (laughs) Can you imagine? Anyway, and now it's enlarged so you can see the grain. And nobody legislated it. See, it's a very important fact to remember. Where did it come from? America's marvelous because if there's money in it, somebody will make it. And you can make fun of that, but the fact is that entrepreneurial spirit is where it comes from. Organic food. I, I was in the Safeway, which I almost never go into, and I glanced over. There's this huge organic produce section. Like, they're not doing it out of idealism. 
although maybe they are by now, but they're doing it because there's money in it. There's a huge, you know, gluten-free section. Where does all of that come from? People want it. Swami spoke to us about, in the, in, I think it might even be in the introduction, to the Education for Life book, which is about our whole living wisdom school system and what we can do and just the whole revolution. He says, it's not going to come from academics. He said, don't even think about converting the college professors. That's not the place to start. Win the parents. Because the parents want their children to be happy. And they want them to succeed. And the parents are the ones who are going to, start de- are going to demand a change. And it, it is, will likely be the parents of the children who had either had a very positive alternative growing up or had a horrible growing up who will demand the change and those parents will want something different for their children and then it will gradually become something else. We're not there yet, but we're moving. I remember uh, uh, we have a lot of Indian families in our school here because there are a lot of Indian families in the area and because for a lot of reasons they like our school. And uh, when we were, but, but at the same time, the Indian educational system is very rigid and co- competition there because of overpopulation is extremely intense. So there's a, it, it's, there's a great concern that if they go an alternative route, will the children still be able to succeed? So one, of the, one, one mother who already had her children in our school and was very happy was talking to another mother who was considering it. And the other mother was saying, but you know, this education is so different than what we received. This is, doesn't look anything like the schooling that we had. Then the committed mother to our school said, yes, and we hated it. Don't you remember? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. It was a nightmare. Ah, and that's how it begins to change. Somebody has the courage to think just because it's always been done that way doesn't mean that we can't find an alternative. And the, the change comes from pain. You know, from suffering, from sickness, from cancer, begin to realize that the pesticides are making my children sick. So no more pesticides. The school is making my children neurotic. So no more of those schools. You know, we often get mid-year transfers uh, because my beautiful daughter is completely closed down and unhappy now. That, That sort of thing. My child hates going to school. Oh, okay. That's how it'll happen. All right. So what happened, to go back to where I was with Swamiji, I started trying to feel more commitment to what was happening because he believed in it. And then, of course, my own experience began to teach me. I, I, especially when I began to share what I was learning with other people. And whereas I felt, you know, really embryonic in my own understanding uh, I realized that a little bit of the practice of this inward religion can save you from dire fears and colossal sufferings and people in front of me who knew nothing about what we were doing I could just see their whole lives turning around from just the tiny tiniest little bits of what uh, Ananda and Master's teachings were about and i just began to see the results in my own life and see the results in other people's lives and I just got really excited and I've stayed that way for approximately 50 years (laughs) just because it's just thrilling 
That's what I was saying to the fundraiser. You know, if you, you really believe in it, I just really, really believe in it. I think this is the, the pattern of the future, self-realization. Not Ananda per se, but we're just one of the rays and it's the one I'm drawn to. And so then it's, it's just, it's like breathing. It's not like you try to be committed. It's like, this is who I am, so this is what I must do. It's a very relaxing place to be, really. Everything gets very simple at that point. All right, I think that will do us for tonight. So we went through, we started at 3.36 and we ended in the middle of 3.40. So if I could have your pen.